From the Defense Acquisition University, this is the Learning Circle. This is the Learning Circle. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and my guest today is Patty Shank, digital learning sciences author and facilitator. And speaking of author, she's just come out with a new volume. She has other books, but her new book is called Write Better Multiple Choice Questions to Assess Learning. There's a lot in that title, and I, I want to begin there. But first, Patty, welcome to the Learning Circle. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It is a thrill to have you, and special thanks to Clark Quinn to helping us uh, connect and set this up. I interviewed Clark a few months ago and uh, really enjoy his work. Um, I wanted to ask you, though, about your book. The title tells us that multiple choice questions aren't merely an exercise. They're actually there to assess learning. Patty, please expound upon that for us. Tell us what you mean by assessing learning through multiple choice. It's a great question. And the problem with a lot of assessments are that the a starting problem with a lot of assessments are that people who build them don't know why they're building them. And if you don't know why you're doing something, chances are you'll do a less adequate job than if you do know. So. In the book, I start with why are we assessing anything to begin with? And there's a number of reasons. One of the primary reasons is to assess whether the learning works. And what I mean by that is, is if you've got good learning objectives, and that, as, as you know, is a huge if. Most of our learning objectives um, are as poorly written as our multiple choice questions. But if you've got a good one, and a good one is one that explains the task and outcomes needed. If you've got one of those, you want to find out, you absolutely want to find out whether those objectives were achieved or not. And that's a primary reason for you and I, people in the workplace learning field, it's a primary reason for using assessments and specifically multiple choice questions. There are, there's another primary reason, and that is to assess our instruction, right? Um, so we want to assess whether people met the learning objectives so that we know whether our instruction works. If it doesn't work, we've got to fix it. And we also want to know whether the instruction actually does what it's supposed to do other than people learning. Like, is it timely? Is it efficient? All those things. But learning objectives are the main reason that we write multiple choice questions. In fact, the research says to us that the purpose of writing good multiple choice questions is to make sure that we are measuring the right thing. And the right thing is, is the learning objective. But if the learning objective is poorly written, we're not measuring the right thing either. Right. Kind of convoluted. But the main thing here is... Does our instruction actually deliver the learning objectives that are needed? Now, I don't know if this is going to be duplicative, but I wanted to follow up. That question came out of your title. You have a subtitle, and I always love subtitles just as a, a purchaser of books. It helps me decide if it's really what I want to read about. Uh, yours provides a nice window in. The subtitle is Measure What Matters. Evidence-Informed Tactics for Multiple Choice Questions. Patty, what are the things we're hoping to measure? You, you mentioned some of it already, but is there more that we're measuring? Um, mainly, we're measuring the skills and knowledge in the learning objectives. And of the two, um, it's the skills that are most important because the skills embed the knowledge, Right. In order to, to uh, make decisions, for example, we have to have an, enough knowledge to be making good decisions. And decisions are one of the things we often, we discussed um, earlier on before we got started recording about higher level multiple choice questions. And most of those higher level multiple choice questions are about inferences and decisions and problems that we're solving. 
the kinds of things we do on the job that are very important. What you've discussed so far is very, very helpful. And I appreciate the format of this book. You've written this book to be, uh, it is scholarly and it has exercises and it really takes you through things from the ground up, especially matters like writing well-formed objectives. You cover what I learned in school, the ABCD method of audience, behavior, condition, degrees, all those elements of forming objectives are so important and you have to have them. So you you kind of uh, start the reader from the ground up so that they can understand how to do that. I want to take a step back, though, to ask you, what was your goal with this book? I I know there's other books out there that cover uh, writing assessments. Uh, How is this different? What made you want to write this and, and in this format? Well, I I honestly didn't think I was going to write it. I I teach a course in writing multiple choice questions, and it's very in-depth, and people come out from what they tell me and from what I see, they come out being able to write good multiple choice questions. So I thought, well, that's my vehicle, right? Um, I, I will teach them how to do that. But I kept getting requests for the training manual that was included with the multiple choice questions course. And I don't want, I, first of all, I didn't want to give away the training manual because I didn't think it made sense by itself. So at some point I started getting requests from college professors who teach assessment um, to people who do what you and I do. And they said, look, I can't embed your course in my course, but is there something you can give me that will help people do this? And besides which, my course is not is not the same price as the book, right? So there are some, there's only some people who are going to be willing to pay to learn how to write multiple cho- choice questions at, with with my help. So I really want people to do a better job because not doing a good job with multiple choice questions is not an option. It really isn't an option. People get in trouble. Um, we get in trouble and the people we're teaching get in trouble. So so I finally said, okay, this shouldn't be too hard. I'll take my course manual and I'll turn it into a book. Well, that, that, was, that was ridiculous thinking um, because the course, the course manual supported the course and I really was at ground zero for a lot of it, but, but I pushed through and got it done. And in the first, I don't know, this book came out on September one. Um, I've sold more of this book in less than a month than I probably sold my other books in six months to a year um, because people get that they suck at this um, and it's not a good option to, to be putting out assessments that are poorly written. Yeah. And you know what, what I was driving at with it in terms of the format of the book, this is not a tome. This is no. not a doorstop. This is accessible. It's something that's, it's not a daunting thing. It's something people can use and have as a ready reference to support practice. So uh, it's short I really, on purpose. Yeah. I really I, appreciate I, that I, about it. I always write with the idea that there should, it should not look intimidating at all. And one of the ways, you know, that you can make something non-intimidating is with white space and not dense text, but also not giving somebody 400 pages and, and, and then looking at it and thinking, I will still be an advanced beginner at the end mm-hmm. of 400 pages. And so whenever possible, when I write, I try to use the Pareto principle, which is that you get your biggest bang from your buck from... 20% of whatever. Yeah. The 20 yields the 80, right? Right. Sure. That's right. It's, it's, so that's, that's what I wrote to. It's short. Now about multiple choice questions. Sometimes they get a bad name. I hear instructional designers complain about them, but I think what they're really complaining about are bad multiple choice questions. I think it's a format. And when we consider that there's nothing wrong with the format, it's just that formats can be optimized or sub-optimized. I think they're referring to a a misuse. Patty, what are the marks of bad multiple choice questions? So the reason that I have found that people say they dislike multiple choice questions 
is they think they can only measure recall. And nothing could be further from the truth. If you write recall multiple choice questions, then you will get recall multiple choice questions. But we can measure pretty far up into the the use of knowledge. In other words, skills with multiple choice questions. It just requires you knowing how to do that. So bad multiple choice questions um, have a number of characteristics. And I'm going to talk about a few of them that tell us why all the guidelines for writing good ones are what they are. So number one, bad multiple choice questions are easy to guess the correct answer. So good multiple choice questions use a variety of research-based guidelines to make sure that guessing is not easy. And so that's where just distractors is uh, good distractors. Um, if you have r- bad distractors, then people can guess the answer. And this is a problem. Here's the, what the problem is. When somebody takes a multiple choice que- uh, question assessment, their score should ideally inform your opinion about how well they met the learning objectives. If they can guess, you have no idea whether that score is that they know what to do or whether, whether your assessment was poorly written and so they were able to guess. And there's a big difference between people who know what to do and people who can guess the right answer. And we want to make it so that guessing the right answer is much less likely and getting the right answer is more likely because you know the answer. So that's a bad one. And the other thing that, that's problematic with poorly written multiple choice questions is that they are often hard to understand because people write them unclearly. And so uh, most of the guidance that we're given on multiple choice questions, how to write them, is to make them harder to guess and easier to understand. I'm assuming a bad example might be if you were asked to choose which president delivered the Gettysburg Address and one of the choices is Mickey Mouse. Correct. You're not trying very hard at, at making it difficult for the, the learner to um, choose correctly. Right. And they should only be able to choose correctly because they know the answer, because they learned what they need to be able to do. And so bad distractors make it easy to guess. Making it easy to guess makes it hard for you as an assessment writer to determine whether they actually know the know the answer or whether they just guessed it. And that's right. that's a serious validity problem for multiple choice questions. And most, most of the research on quality of multiple choice questions shows that uh, bad distractors are done so often as, as to be the norm. I understand that you consider distractors to be the hardest part about writing multiple choice questions. Why, why is that? Well, because people don't know how to, to come up with plausible. Now, the, the number one thing distractors need to be is plausible. And plausible means that if you don't, and it's not plausible to everyone, it's plausible to the people who don't know the answer. Right. Those distractors should not be particularly plausible to people who do know the answer. But plausibility implies that if I don't know the answer and I'm looking at, let's say we have three answer choices, one's correct, two are incorrect. I'm looking at the three answer choices. And to me, they all look equally plausible. And that's really hard to do until you get into, you dive into the research about how do you do this? What are the ways to make those distractors plausible to those who don't know the answer and less plausible to the people who do? Um, and, and so in the book, I describe and show loads of examples of how to do this. Um, and so far, people who have talked to me about the book have said that that was one of the most helpful parts of, of the book. Is there a fine line between what you're describing being plausible and being too tricky? Like, Oh, uh, I love this question. I just yeah. love it because this is... This is one of those nuances with multiple choice questions that so the, that people often don't get. And since they don't get the nuance, they don't understand how to do it. 
Um, so here's, here's the deal. We don't want trick questions. We want our questions to be as close to reality as real life. So when, when let's say we're asking people to make a decision, you, you see a specific, I, I'm giving you an example of multiple choice questions. So you see a, an example of a specific notice that comes up, up on the screen, and then you want to ask people, what should you do? Um, so for example, in the book, I have, I have this example where you are, you run a restaurant and you come in and you, in the morning to get ready for the day. And you notice that the box that's on top of refrigerator two has two error messages. And so, and this is a higher level question because it's embedded in, in a real situation. Right. And this, it's, this is real. So I show a picture of the two error codes and then, then what should you, what should you do next? Um, so you have to use the information, the knowledge that you have of those error codes, or in an, another example, you might have a link to look them up because if in real life, you, there are 500 error codes, you would never remember that. Right. So, so there'd be a link in the question to look up those error codes because in real life, that's what you, you would do. So there's a lot of times when I tell people how to do this, that they say the correct answer must be 100% correct and the distractors must be 100% incorrect because otherwise I'm tricking people. And I call these best answer questions. And I tell people that both in, in the book and in my course, that in real life, we are choosing between the best answer less best less good answers and poor answers all the time in our real work um so a researcher that i describe in the book his name is ronald burke he says we have to write our questions so that they are like reality so it, so best answer questions are really important when that is what someone has to do in real life if in real life they have to choose between the best answer and answers that are either less correct, only sometimes correct or, or not correct, then we need to do that in our questions as well. And yeah, so, this was, so, so, I'm, forgive me, I'm tripping on you, Patty. Yeah, no, uh, this is really a really important point. So I'm glad you are. Yeah, uh, this and this was something I was actually going to ask you about because it had occurred to me a, a while back as I've studied multiple choice as a format and studied scenario-based learning that uh, we often tend to think of multiple choices merely just a, a list of choices and that's it. And, you know, one of them's correct and the rest are wrong. We already talked about the, the kind, of, kind of the hack move of putting in the absurd choice, which really is just a waste of space and just narrows it down. But scenarios, it seems to me that instead of providing those mere choices, we can have people choose from what you were starting to discuss, good, better, best, worse reactions to a situation that you're presenting. Because I believe that learners are trying to achieve identification. They're trying to identify with a role, and we're, we're trying to help project them into a role or a situation where they have to perform and perform well. And so multiple choice, really, uh, you know, people, we can get off into like the way people use branching and things like that, but just uh, purely as a way to present scenarios, there's a wonderful opportunity in multiple choice questions. So I wanted to get into that with you, Patty. What does the art of scenario-based multiple choice authoring look like? Right. So I discuss, I think it's three levels of reality. And so scenarios and the simulations um, and then real life, right? So Schrock and Coscarelli, who wrote probably the best, somewhat difficult to understand book on the use of multiple choice, which is one of the reasons I wrote this book so that people don't have to read four or 500 pages of very dense information. And by the way, if you know a lot about multiple choice and you want the best of the best, um, and to go further, theirs is the book to read. But but um, so well, they, the YouTube generation thanks you for your book. So uh, <laughs> no, look, and I, I get it. Most people are not assessment nerds, right? Yes. Um, I am. Have been for 
for a long time. So um, one of the things they say, and this gets back to to the issue of are, is multiple choice any good, is Schrock and Coscarelli say when we want to certify skills, there are three levels uh, of assessment that we can use to certify. Anything below these three levels is probably too low. We, we can get information like formative evaluation to determine what people know and don't know so that we can help them fix any, any misunderstandings. But when we're doing summative evaluation, whether when we want to know, did this course, did the people in this course meet the learning objectives? We want to certify that they do know that they have met the learning objectives. And Schrock and Coscarelli talk about three levels. So the top level is real life, and that's performance assessment, right? Um, Where we give someone the task to do, and hopefully we have a checklist of the things we're looking for in order to have a more effective uh, assessment. And they do the task, hopefully multiple times, because you can get it right one time, or you can get it wrong one time, still no know how to do it. And then the next level down is a simulation where we simulate reality with a fairly high level of fidelity. Um, And you know, in the military, that's real common to use um, simulations. Uh, Probably the most commonly recognized simulation is flight, flight simulators. And what we know about simulation is if we do it well, it has simulated reality well enough so that people can go from the simulation into reality and they, ha- they can do it. Um, so that's a one level down. The next level down, and, and according to Schrock and Coscarelli, the, a still very good way of measuring whether people can do things to certify that they can is scenarios. And scenarios are much more abstracted from reality. Everything's not real. But some the most important things to be real are real, and that's the decisions they're making based on whatever context you give them. So remember the ABCD learning objectives, the context piece becomes really important for these questions. And that is for you to describe what is happening and you provide enough detail so that, that they have the detail they need to make that decision. So let's get back to you coming in the morning, you've got that tool on your refrigerator, two refrigerators, and one of them has thrown two coats. And so you've got a decision to make. What do I do next? And so in that example in the book, I'm showing you, I'm telling you it's the beginning of the day. I've just walked in. I want to get set up for for the lunch crowd. And I noticed that that refrigerator number two has two codes on it telling me that there's problems. Um, And then whatever other information you need is in that in there. So I've given you an image of what you're seeing and I'm I'm telling you what's going on. And then I've got two, three. Well, not two, but, but three or four. Um, choices. And those choices are going to probably include the best choice, other choices which are plausible, but not the best choice. So for example, in this case, um, one of the codes means that the refrigerator has been below the needed temperature for six hours or more, which tells me it's an emergency. And so I'm actually dealing with reality with the with this scenario. This is a scenario question. Yes. And I use the best distractors for that. And in that situation, in reality, I have to I have to make a decision based on the context. And the distractors should be the best decision, less good decisions, and maybe a decision that on the moon would be best, but, but it could be bad. It could be a good decision, but not for the, not in this context. So that's how we get a good scenario questions is we pick situations that the learning objectives tells us are critical. And we write a question with adequate context in it. And then we write distractors that are just like reality. 
Right. You are actually, in a vivid way, depicting a situation. It may be fictitious, but the performance outcomes you want learners to achieve are real. They are real and relatable, like walking into a kitchen and all of a sudden your inventory of refrigerated goods is at risk of perishing. And what do you do? Right. So the book describes what research says should be in our situation questions. And the most important is that you pick a real situation that's important and that the that you provide enough context so that they can make the correct decision based on the context. Because in real life, we make decisions not based on nothing. We make them based on context. And so research tells us that if we write really good multiple choice questions, they are similar in their ability to certify skills as performance assessments, which is mind-blowing. Most people don't like multiple choice questions because they think they can only measure recall. And yet research tells us if we do it well, they're almost as good as performance assessments. And let's face it, most people are not going to do real-life performance assessments because they're time-consuming. We have a hard enough time assessing anything. Look, if the assessment is life or death, we should be doing some performance assessments. We should know that people can do it because we've seen them do it. Um, But in real life, um, whether a salesperson knows what what window blinds to sell on a west-facing window is, is not life or death. We just want to know that they sell the right thing. Yes. So we don't have to go to the real level of performance assessment. We don't have to build a, a simulator. We can use multiple choice questions to get at the same thing at a very high level of quality. Yeah, that's what I meant by projecting that learner into a situation, something that they can that's vivid enough with which they can identify. What I love about this is that it's all done through the medium of text. And it doesn't have and to be all text, okay? So No, it doesn't. Add, it, let, it doesn't. Let's say let's say we're teaching people how to wash their hands um in a food service uh, organization mm-hmm. um to reduce foodborne illnesses. One of the things we might do for a scenario-based question is actually video somebody doing it wrong and then putting the video and then the stem is watch the video which of the following is something that Claudia did wrong while washing her hands? Or like the question I wrote about the refrigerator, you actually see the box with the error codes. Yes. I didn't mean to say that this can't be multimodal or have various media, but what I appreciate about multiple choice is that at its simplest, it harnesses text well. Yes. Because we sub-optimize text. Our industry yes. famously um, makes excuses for our product. We call them page turners right. when in the publishing industry, that's a compliment. Here, it's a denigration of what we're doing. W- what's our problem? We haven't mastered text yet. Why are we tricking out the products with all kinds of media trinkets? So I just love that what you're describing with multiple choice is a way to actually embrace text, use that as a medium correctly. You can put people into very vivid situations in the theater of the mind and then give them feedback, choices, and then feedback where they're really working through something that feels very, very real. And we know from science that just pre-visualizing things can create the same effects as reality. You know, you can imagine a dog walking into a room and sitting down and the same chemical uh, response in the brain that's positive can happen just by thinking about that kind of a thing. So I, I just love that we can use text to its full extent with multiple choice. And, and there's, there's some things about that that are really helpful. One is that all these trinkets and beads and, and um, things going off and things moving on the screen increases cognitive load greatly, can increase cognitive load greatly. And we know that multiple choice questions, if they're well written, have a fairly high cognitive load to begin with. If we add all these bells and whistles and stuff on on top of it, we may very well be making it hard 
to assess what we want to assess because it's actually harder than the job. So text is, is good because we can allow people to focus their energy and attention on what matters there. Exactly. Now, we touched on feedback a couple of beats back. What is your best advice for feedback? What does good feedback look like so that we don't drop the ball at the end of our, our well-formed multiple choice questions? Well, feedback on multiple choice questions is really nuanced. It depends on the reason you're giving feedback. If it, this is a summative assessment at the end of a course, um, research shows they don't read the feedback. They read the, they read the score and whether they passed or not. I'm not saying that's good. The purpose of feedback in most cases is to help people take the next step. You know, the next step meaning you're done. Next step meaning you're ready to go on to the next course. Next step meaning you didn't understand this. So we've got to remediate, right? And so what people don't tend to do at the end of a course-based or even module-based assessment is be willing to go back and remediate. And so we have trained people that, okay, you got a 75, that wasn't as high as you wanted, but you passed. So I don't care. Let's just move on to the next thing. So that's one of the nuances is whether it's formative or, or summative. Um, and another nuance is whether people know a lot or they don't. If we've got somebody who is brand new to something, um, they must understand, and yet they can't take in a whole lot more. So what the research on feedback says is if someone's learning something brand new, make sure the feedback is very targeted to the specific aspects of the learning objective you're testing. Short, sweet, concise, written clearly, really important. And if people have more understanding and they're more expert, you can provide them with resources to expand their knowledge and that sort of thing because they can handle it. But when someone's brand new, and a lot of the training we do are pe for people that are brand new, we've got to keep it really clear and targeted. Thank you. That's a lot to throw at you in that question. It's kind of an it depends answer. Now, timing is everything in life. When should we provide feedback? Right. So the, this is a new, another nuanced issue. Um, in general, because we provide feedback to help people move on, if people are new to the content, they can't move on usually unless we remediate. So immediate feedback is more important, tends to be more important for people who are new. And feedback that is delayed and the issue of how long is delayed has not really been answered in the research well. But people with more experience benefit from a delay in, in feedback so that they, their mind has time to think through all the issues, which then makes it easier for them to remember. Delayed feedback acts as a device that helps people remember. It's forcing recall, which is very powerful. Yes, yeah. Uh, or maybe, is, is it another way of saying more or less scaffolding, depending on the experience? Yes, I, I, I think so, that we're scaffolding less for people who know more um, and can handle the, the less scaffolding. But, but immediate feedback becomes a scaffold for people who are fairly new. Look, if you're brand new to learning something and someone tells you you're not going to learn the answer till tomorrow, chances are by tomorrow you will have for even forgotten what you know. Right. So shorter, you know, no delays are good. For now, you can delay it to the end of the module, which, of course, is helpful if you're doing summative feedback. But delayed for people with more knowledge is good in most circumstances. And shorter and no delay, immediate feedback is better for people who, who really can't wait because they're going to forget things. And they can't move on. You can't move on if you have a misunderstanding. You can move on, but you're moving on with misunderstandings. And moving on with misunderstandings means you're the next thing you learn is going to be messed up. Right. So you're aligning the feedback with the amount of prior knowledge that a learner has. Yes, the, that I would say that's exactly right. Thank you. 
So, Patty, we always hear about Bloom's Taxonomy in our world. Is Bloom's Taxonomy a place to start when setting up multiple choice questions? Okay, so my answer to this one is going to um, freak uh, some people out. Um, And I think it might freak out quite a few people. The research no longer supports using Bloom's Taxonomy. And, and let me explain why. It's not, there's nothing wrong with Bloom's taxonomy. It's just old and it wasn't made for, for the uses that we now use it. And so in the 1980s, we started to have a, just a constant flow of, of research on how we think about things, how we understand things. It was the, the cognitivists and what we came to understand is that the levels of thought that Bloom enumerated are no longer really appropriate. We end up with bad questions often when we use Bloom's taxonomy. We end up with stems that ask people to list or describe. List and describe are, are right. big ones. All the, the famous verbs based on the level of Bloom's taxonomy. Right. And we end up with boatloads of questions are about listing and describing. And in reality, especially in workplace learning, if we look at a good learning objective, people are never almost never required to list or describe. They're required to do. They're required to use. They're required to make decisions. They're required to decide what something means, um, not list or describe. And so Brenda Segru wrote some really good articles on this, and it heavily influenced me. And I came up, based on Haladina's work and Brenda's work, I came up with a simpler and easier but more powerful way of thinking about levels levels of thinking that we want to measure. And it's pretty easy. The bottom one is remember. That's not usually what we want to ask people to do in multiple choice questions. Understand is the next one and use or apply is the top one. People say, well, how do I pick a verb for apply? Because that's what most of our questions should be asking. Super easy. Look at your learning objective. It tells you the verb. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's, you know, if, if you pick, and that's why in my book, um, I have a, a whole job aid uh, on action verbs because, and these action verbs come from job descriptions, not from blooms. Um, so we should write a good learning objective that says what the person's doing using an accurate action verb. And that's the level of thought we are measuring. Most of it's going to be in the, uh, in the use um, layer. That is a very interesting answer. That's very thought provoking and challenging. I've seen modifications to Bloom's taxonomy, there's variations on the pyramid and little tweaks. Yes. Are there challengers to that throne of, uh, you know, something that would replace or supplant Bloom's taxonomy that, I think you just described the way you define it, but is um, I guess I'm asking for is is there a place where we can see an alternate construct or representation yeah. that's an alternative? Is that in your books or on, yes. on a website? It, it, it's in the book, um, and it comes directly from um, Haladina, who's probably the most famous researcher in multiple choice questions. And I've read all of his books. They are difficult to read, but he talks about levels of thought in a number of his books. And he's talking about, you know, what, just like Ronald Burke said, measure what the person has to do. So the learning objective describes what they have to do and to what degree, and then measure that. Right, right. And so in the book, I I just... I show three concentric circles and remember, understand, and understand is worth, is worth uh, measuring because, because if they don't understand it, they can't do it in most cases. And then use the verb, the action verb in, in use comes from what they're doing in the learning objective. That's very helpful. This is, it sounds much more direct and it's so organic to the learning objectives that it just seems like very common sense. 
it it, it is um and i'm kind of surprised when i when i was writing those chapters i was surprised to not find someone else describing that look i found it in haladina and brenda Segru's articles which are are discussed in in the book are are really good as well um but i didn't find someone else saying oh this is how we should do this <laughs> um, right 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 and and so um I, I don't know about you, but when I'm writing something that to me is, seems really super obvious and no one's written about it before, um, that scares me a little bit. <laughs> scares yes. me like, like um, am I off here? But Right. But, well, it, exactly. It makes you wonder. It sends you back maybe to research. Has someone overlooked yeah. this? Am I just expressing something that was already expressed differently? Uh, I do the same things because I do um, – I don't intend to be a, a heretic or to challenge orthodoxy, but I do question things. I think we have a, a finite scope of the, the learning and development world, and we have to, to seek uh, things beyond and, and bring new things in to bring things up to date or just inform things that are under-informed. Right. That's a very healthy thing to do. So, Patty, while we're, we're sort of challenging prevailing orthodoxy, I wanted to ask you about some other things, which I believe you address in, in your other books. You have pointed out that there's uh, some upsides, but also downsides to this prevalent digital uh, medium that we're in. Everything, you know, ever the whole ether that we, we breathe is digital these days. I don't know how many people are getting the print edition versus the digital of your book, but you do speak to the downsides of digital, including cognition. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll be quiet now. I want to just let you speak to that because I'm very interested in this area. So one of the reasons I started looking into this is we are more and more writing for media that will end up digital. And I wanted to know if we're going to write for digital media, do we need to write differently? Um, because clarity is so critical. And for instance, here, here's something most people will relate to. You know how they say in print, the, the following fonts are really good, but if on digital, um, you should use sans serif instead of serif and all of that. By the way, the research is super uh, unequivocal on this. Um, we're not sure. There are, there are some fonts that, that are, are better for um, accessibility and, and sure, yet, no, yeah. right. You know, that they're clearly, as a typographer, a lot of it has to do with the higher X height where you right, can sort of exactly. see the essence of the letter form. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm updating the write and organize for deeper learning book with a whole nother section on how we write for digital. In the first book, I address it throughout the book um, lightly I don't assume you're writing in print or digital. So every, so the issues with clarity are, are the same elsewhere, like passive voice versus active voice, um, which we know passive voice is harder to understand. Yes. Right. So I'm, I, I think it might take me a year to update the book. And so I've been pulling research and reading it. And the research, the, the latest research about how comprehension in digital media is that in many cases, the comprehension of digital is lower, compounded with the problem of people don't know that they're not comprehending in digital. That all of the things that I, that I tell people they need to do in order to make something more comprehensible are on steroids for digital. Um, because because uh, like uh, passive voice, we don't, you know, passive voice is usually wordier and longer. We want to be absolutely. More, we want to be more concise in, in digital and um, more clear. Um, and one of the things about digital I read recently was, was so people keep reading in digital even if they don't understand. And part of the if you have a book in your hand, sometimes you'll go back, you'll you'll um, skim backwards. Where did they? Where did they introduce this? Let me go back there and find that because right, you have a you have a more ambiguous sense of place, right? When you're because, and because of in that, the thick of an electronic book, right? Um, because of that, people tend to just keep going. And remember earlier, I said 
if we misunderstand and we go forward, we're bringing that misunderstanding forward with us, which mm-hmm. means we're likely to misunderstand things forward as well because we don't ha- we don't we misunderstood something in the right. past. So, and you're slo- you're kind of slogging through a tunnel carrying your misapprehension um, compounded by the the it's it's not easy to just flip back and verify your understanding you just ca- yeah you just sort of like a pack animal ca- carry accumulating questions with you and keep reading right and i'm in, just in the middle of this now so i'm going to tell you just a little bit about what what i think i understand one is people read faster because they're just moving through things, right? And this is page flipping. Um, um, and for those of you who are listening, I'm moving my finger to indicate page flipping. Mm-hmm. That if we're going to do digital instruction and they're going to be reading or listening to something on digital, we need to stop more often, chunk better, stop more often, and assess understanding um, and remediate a- as we go along. The onus is on us as deliverers of digital learning content to help people calibrate what they think they understand with what they actually understand so that they don't lose stuff. They don't lose understanding because they're in digital. We also have to be much more careful with, with clarity um, because if it's unclear, they'll just keep going. You do this in your book, you, you know, so this is not just uh, theory, do. this is practice for you. At the end of every chapter, uh, you highlight the takeaways from the yes. book so that you can reiterate it. You know, uh, repetition is the mother of learning. I believe that's a Russian expression. Uh, and there's a good kind of repetition that doesn't feel redundant. It's reassuring, actually. And it's just a way of saying, hey, we're, we're all together and let's move forward. And I think it is very important, given the nature of of new kinds of media that where people are are taking in information. I, I agree with you, and we don't do a good job with this in print or in the classroom. People say the classroom's the gold standard, right? Um, people lecturing at you at the front of the room and and not assessing understanding and not having people test things out and try them and and practicing. Um, is bad learning, right? So um, we shouldn't do that in digital. We shouldn't do that in the classroom. Um, we've got to figure out the best ways to actually help people retain the things they need to retain so they can use it. And we're we're not retaining for the sake of retaining. We're reta- retaining for the sake of using. And, and, and you know what? One of the things I forgot to say is, is one of the things that I'm reading about digital reading is it depends like narrative texts, like novels, not a problem. Um, and they call, they call things um, that are like nonfiction that that's more difficult expository texts, real hard to read. Um, yeah. Digitally. Yeah. There's a difference between reading James Patterson, uh, yes. you know, something fictional on a novel. It's very, very, very different. And there's also something about comprehension when you are, looking at fixed type that is on a printed page that isn't liquid. It's not reflowable. Your mind remembers the physical, especially Mm -hmm. books that you have studied, you know, like I can remember like diagrams in my mind and I know it's on the lower right hand of the page because it's just part of the experience and it got, it just got burned in better. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally get that. Yes. So, Patty, this really brings us naturally back to multiple questions because we are assessing whether they did understand, right? We are. We are assessing whether the participant met the learning objectives, which also is a way of assessing whether our, our course is adequate, um, does the things we need it to do. Um, we are not teaching people content. We are teaching people skills. I have a real problem with people who think that instructional design and learning experience design is the design uh, of engaging content. It's not. It's the design of engaging experiences that help people get somewhere they need to go. 
It's a very different thing. It is a different thing. And the nuance I tend to add there is I really don't believe we're in control of engagement. We can set conditions that hopefully will foster it and create a reaction. But I ultimately don't know if I've pushed those buttons inside the learner. Right. Um, I, I, I The real engagement is relevancy to the learner. Um, if a learner needs to be able to do X and we deliver an efficient and effective program that gets them there, that's um, a, a pretty good way of engaging people. Yes. Um, the relevance dovetails with what I was uh, getting at earlier with identification. People want to identify with a role that they're they're seeing themselves in. That's why narrative is so powerful. That's why yes. uh, the narrative injection into multiple choice questions, uh, I think, is such a great optimization it is. Uh, of it as a medium for assessment. Patty, I really am grateful you've been on with me for a while, and I'm, I'm so thankful for your time with me. Uh, tell us, I think I know how to get this book, and I think we know where to look, but tell us how we can find your book. Um, it's actually really easy. One of the reasons I self-publish with Amazon is because um, they they distribute it all over the world. So wherever you are, just go on Amazon and it's write better multiple choice questions to assess learning. The easiest way to do this is just put in my name um, under books. Um, it's Patty with an I, P-A-T-T-I, Shank, S-H-A-N-K. And it will be the first book that comes up because it's selling the most right at the right at this moment. Or you can go on my website, and my website is pattyshank.com, K-T-T-I-S-H-A-N-K. And on the very first page, I have a link to the book on Amazon. Excellent. Okay. And it's available in paper and digital. And digital. Digital has its upsides as well. Um, you know, I'm very glad that I don't have to have stacks of novels in boxes. They're all just in the, again, the, the digital ether I was describing before. Saves a lot of space. But um, Patty, I, I really appreciate your time. The book is tremendous. I think it will be of tremendous value to our audience. I hope they'll seek it out. Appreciate your time with us today. Thanks so much, Anthony. I really like being here, and I especially enjoyed the uh, insights and depth of questions that, that you had. Oh, thank you, Patty. It's been my pleasure. Thank you again. Thank you for listening. To catch up on all of our shows, subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Learning Circle is produced and distributed by the Defense Acquisition University.